Let's crack it, Wags Hill. You ready? Shout out to my rafters. Yeah. I'm still freezing. Are you cold? I think my core body temperature has gotten about 50 yet. But we're hanging in there. That was a good time today, man. I was impressed with you guys. Impressed with your endurance this week. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to be with you guys. We've got a few more nights together, uh, so let's enjoy it. We've got a Bible turn over to James chapter 1. We're going to read there this evening. Let me give you a recap of where we have been so far. The first night we saw that endurance in a Christian life is a gift of the everlasting God. It's what he gives us with the personal work of Jesus by his grace. And then we talked about how he, he renews our strength as we wait on him. And then the last few nights we've been talking about specific ways we can wait on him. The first night we said that we wait on him through obedience to his word. And then last night we said that we wait on him through resting in Jesus. Well, tonight we're going to see that we wait on him uh, by expecting, by expectation, by having hope in what we believe that he will do. As we wait on him, as we put our hope in him, that he renews our strength. So we're going to read tonight James 1, we're going to start at verse 2, we're going to read to verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Can it all join my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you, I'm sorry, I think I skipped a line there. No, I didn't. Okay. Let's start over again. If you ever just totally screw something up, just start all over again. Okay? James 1, verse 2. Can I all join my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this good word. It's a good word that encourages us to remain faithful to you during trials. Father, we thank you for giving us this hope that we have a promise from you that you will use our trials for a good purpose. So I pray tonight that as we come to this passage, that you would strengthen our faith. Father, spirit is willing when the flesh is weak. We believe. Help our unbelief. We are weary and tired by stress and hardship um, that we encounter, encounter this life through the trials that we encounter. But you promise to use our trials to produce something good in us and in this world. And you promise to reward us with eternal life with you. And I pray that that would encourage us and strengthen us tonight. In Jesus' name.
A few years ago, I read an article about a young lady named Sam Peterman. Uh, Sam is a middle distance, or this time, or the article, she's a middle distance runner in high school with a very rare medical condition called neurocardiac, neurocardiac syncope, or NCS. And, and this is what, what it means. It causes her body to misread her blood pressure at the end of her races. So this is what happened. She literally runs her races, gets to the finish line, shuts it down, and then faints. Of course, the first few times it happened, they were shocked. So they took her to the doctor to find out what's going on. The doctor said, this is what your daughter has. Actually, there's nothing wrong with her. She's perfectly okay. She's fine to run. The most dangerous part for her is the fainting at the end of the race. Because she could faint, she could fall, and she could hurt herself. So this is what she does. She runs every race as hard as she can to win. At the finish line stands her father. And after she crosses that finish line of every race, her father is there to catch her when she faints. Now imagine how that changes the way she runs that race. She totally, completely trusts her father to catch her at the end so she can run the race confidently, boldly, aggressively, knowing that her father is there to catch her at the end. If she doesn't trust him, what happens? She probably never runs. She doesn't do the race at all. Or if she does the race, then maybe she quits in the middle because she's scared to get her heart rate up too much. Or maybe she just doesn't run the race full speed. But because of her expectation that her heavenly father, that her father is going to be there at the finish line, she runs the race with confidence, she runs the race with joy, she crosses that finish line. I think James wants us to have that type of mentality, that type of expectation here in this passage, right? He wants us to see our Heavenly Father at the end of the finish line of our race. And he wants us, he wants us to motivate us to run boldly, to run confidently, and to run joyfully the race set before us, no matter what happens. Knowing that in the end, he is going to be there not just to catch us, but actually to reward us with a crown of life. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What I want you to see is that we run our race with an expectation. And that expectation actually allows us, and that expectation is that God is going to use our trials to produce something in us. He's going to use it to produce three things, Okay. He's going to use our trials to produce steadfastness, to produce um, completeness, and then he's going to use it to reward us with the crown of eternal life. He's going to produce steadfastness, he's going to produce completeness, and then he's going to reward us with the crown of eternal life. And, that, and because he's going to do that, that means that we can run this race with joy. Look, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word count is an accounting term. It, it's like you mentally count something up. You add it up. And you mentally say, okay, these trials are a good thing. See, as Christians, we believe 
that trials uh, are painful. We're realistic about our suffering. It's painful. It's not good. It's not the way life's supposed to be. Like Paul talked about earlier, we long for a day when Satan, sin, and suffering are all gone. So we don't cover over it. We don't ignore it. We can count our trials as joy because we know that God has a purpose for them. Okay? So the first thing I want you to see is that we can count our trials as joy because we expect God to produce steadfastness. We count our trials as joy because we expect God to produce steadfastness. Now, steadfastness is not a word that we use a lot, but it means the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances or endurance. Steadfastness is just another way of saying endurance. James is saying that we can count our trials as joy because we know that our suffering is going to produce more endurance. Now, as athletes, we know this. We know that athletic training works on this principle, right? You train and you continue to add. If you're running, you add a little bit more. You let a little bit more, a little bit more running. And as you run more and more and more, you develop more endurance, right? Um, uh, you know, this, this happens in other areas of life as well. You know, when I was in high school, I used to get a Sunday book that was like 100, 150 pages. And I thought, oh, that's so long. Like, how could I ever read that? And now I look at a 150-page book, and I'm like, oh, it's less than 200. That's not that bad. Right? But you're, you know, as, you, as you read more, your endurance develops. Uh, maybe video games. Right? You, you, you get through those first few levels on, uh, on a video game, and they seem so hard. And then once you get to the end of the video game, you beat it, you go back and you play those first few levels, and you're like, this is cake. These are easy. Right? As you go through the trial, you actually develop more Endurance, you develop steadfastness. So James is saying that we can count our trials as joy because we know that God is going to use them to produce steadfastness. He's going to strengthen us for other trials that may lie ahead. So why is this important for us? This is important because I think this means that finishing matters. That finishing in life matters. And it means that quitting has consequences, okay? There may be times in life whenever it is wise and natural and good for you to quit something. You know, if you come to the end of your season, you come to the end of your program, uh, you come to the end of a class or whatever, and you say, okay, it's that, that time is done. It's served its purpose. It's over. I'm going to move on to something else. But quitting something, especially something good, prematurely in the middle because it's uncomfortable or it's challenging, or it's awkward, right? You guys hate awkward. Quitting in the middle has long-term consequences because you don't develop that steadfastness in your life. But as we learn how to finish things, we develop steadfastness, we develop perseverance. Quitting and finishing are both habitual. So I think the more we learn to finish things in, the, in life, the more we learn to, to persevere through things that are hard, uncomfortable, and awkward, the more we develop endurance. A friend of mine named Jonathan Moore is a great example of this. Okay? He's someone who's, endure, who's developed endurance through suffering. Okay? When Jay Moore, I call, I'm going to call him Jay Moore because this is nickname. When Jay Moore was a, was a little boy, he lost his brother unexpectedly. And he and his family had to suffer this trial of, of losing a family member. 
but they didn't give up their faith. They stayed together. They stayed faithful. They kept following Jesus during that trial. And they grew out of it. Well, then uh, Jay Moore continued to grow, and he turned into one of the best junior golfers in the world. He was recruited by all the best programs, uh, eventually signed with Oklahoma State, and came to Oklahoma State to play uh, college golf. His freshman year, he totally lost his game. He went from shooting in the low 70s, which is really good, to shooting in the 90s, which is terrible. That's what I shoot. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Jeremy and I shoot. Terrible. Like, shouldn't even have been on the OSU golf team. His whole career looked like it was over. But he didn't quit. He kept his faith. He kept practicing. And over the course of that next year, he gradually got better and better and better and better. And by the the end of his redshirt freshman year, so two years later, he ended up winning the award for the number one college golfer, and he led Oklahoma State to a national championship. He didn't quit. Now, fast forward, years later, him and his wife got married. They started having kids. They had, they had one child. Then they had another child named JT. And when JT was born, the doctor was like, yeah, he's, he's a little slow. Things aren't going well. And after about five months, things really weren't going well. And then uh, several months later, they did a CAT scan that showed that JT's brain was underdeveloped. And he was never going to grow into a normal uh, boy like the rest of us. JT can't talk. He has no use of any of his limbs. He can't see, but he can hear. He is totally and completely dependent on his parents for everything. And recently in a podcast, Jay Moore said that all of the trials that he went through with losing his brother and he went through uh, losing his golf game his freshman year of college prepared him to not only care for his son, but to see it as a gift. His faith developed endurance. God used his trials to develop steadfastness. What trial are you going through right now? Or what trials have you gone through? Little ones, small ones, or big ones. Don't quit. Don't give up your faith. Ask yourself, what is God doing in the midst of this? He's using it to develop steadfastness. He's strengthening you. And as he does that, he's not only going to develop steadfastness, but he's going to begin to make you more and more complete. So the first thing we see is that uh, we can count our trials as joy because it produces steadfastness. And the second thing is we count our trials as joy because we expect God to use it to complete us. That's what James says in verse 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Not only does steadfastness develop our ability to withstand suffering, but it also changes the shape of our character. As we wait on the Lord in suffering, we become more mature, we become complete. Uh, the ESV even says the word is perfect. So what happens in our lives is suffering develop, uh, reveals character flaws. It reveals defects. But what God does through suffering is he changes us, he molds us, he reshapes us. He's in theological terms, he sanctifies us. We see this in other passages, most famously probably in Romans 8, 28, 9. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This means that when you're going through a trial, you may not know the exact reasons why that trial was happening. But you do know that God wants to use it to make you look more like Jesus. That's his goal. He wants you to look more like Jesus. And Jesus was perfect. He was perfect. He was the most perfect man to ever walk the face of the earth. Yet, the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned, he, was, he learned obedience. And that made him perfect. Listen to this. Hebrews 5, 8, 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If Jesus was made perfect through obedience in his suffering, then we can expect God to do the same things in our life. What have you learned about yourself when going through suffering? What has God revealed about your character? I think that's what James is getting at when he says, if anyone doubts, let him ask for wisdom. I think he's saying, if you don't know what God is doing in the midst of your suffering, then ask him. Pray, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? guarantee you God will use it to make you into something more beautiful than you ever thought or imagined. He'll use it to make you more complete. I saw this in one of my students uh, one time. They went through a breakup. Not a bad breakup. They had dated uh, this person for a few months. They went on a few dates. They liked each other, but there was a breakup and they got done. But that trial revealed something in their character. There were cracks in the bridge. And that breakup was like a semi going over those cracks. And all of a sudden the bridge crumbled and everything came out. Insecurity, bitterness, anger, idolatry of marriage and relationships. And they were totally undone. They went into a depression deep, dark place. A place where they wanted to quit. They wanted to give up. But the Holy Spirit gently, powerfully, nudgingly continued to work on them and change them. And through worship, through counseling, through prayer, through lots of conversations, through lots of hard things, it took about a couple years, they eventually came out of it. And you know what? They look more like Jesus today than they did before. God's using them in other people's lives. God's going through, we can count trials as joy because God uses them to make us more complete. He uses it to produce steadfastness in us. He uses it to complete us, to make us look more like Jesus. And lastly, we can, we can, endure, we can count suffering as joy because we know that in the end, it will result in receiving the crown of life. That, that that endurance that we develop and that change that happens strengthens our faith and we continue in our faith until in the end we receive the crown of life. That is promised right here at verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to those who love him. But we don't talk about receiving rewards a lot in like reformed Presbyterian circles. That's not something we're comfortable with, right? We're saved by grace, king anything by works, totally agree, totally agree. But here is a promise that by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we can receive the crown of life. Don't take my word for it. I'm going to quote a scholar here. I'm going to quote a commentary because he says that he describes his crown of life better than I ever could. Listen to this. He says, the blessings of God, the blessings God will give are summed up in the gift of the crown of life. In the Bible, the wearing of the crown speaks to, of, it, of dignity of position, royal or otherwise. It speaks of gladness and rejoicing. It is given to the victor. It is the prize at the end of the race. It is the chief shepherd's reward to his under-shepherds. And it is the reward of faithful endurance. Those who prepare to use this life as an arena of endurance for Jesus' sake will find that an abundant life awaits them from the hand of God. In this world, the onlooker might see them as sacrificing life, as having a wretched time, as missing out on life. They might be asked why they bother. Why do they not opt out and enjoy themselves a bit and so on? But they have chosen to endure for Christ and to live with their eyes on the life which he will give, crowning them with dignity, victory, happiness, and reward in heaven. The greatest gift, eternal life of our Heavenly Father and all the blessings that come with him. That's the promise. That's what we can expect. That's what we have at the finish line. That's what God is developing in us now. This means a lot of things. But I think one of the things that it means is that there's no room for pessimism in the Christian life. There's no room for pessimism in the Christian life. What is a pessimist? A pessimist is someone who always sees the worst in things or believes the worst will happen or they lack hope or confidence in the future. Now, a pessimist is different than a realist. A realist understands all the possibilities that could happen, and they take those things into account, and they make a wise decision. That's a good thing. But a pessimist always sees the bad side of things. They don't see things with hope. They don't see things with expectation. They don't believe the promises of God. Christians are realistic about the pain and suffering in this world but they're not pessimistic. Isn't that crazy? We're realistic about the pain and suffering in this world, but we're not pessimistic. We approach the pain and suffering in this world with hope because we know that our Heavenly Father has promised it and our Savior Jesus Christ has secured it. We expect God to use our sufferings to strengthen us for the race ahead. We know that in the end, all our sufferings will be worth the reward. And this allows us to live with hope. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with Ernest Hemingway. I love the way Hemingway writes. I love the brevity of it. I, I love that the way he can just, you know, say so many things with, with one or two words or with a short sentence. But I hate the endings of his books. I hate it. Anybody else in here ever read Ernest Hemingway? It's brutal, isn't it? I got to the, uh, I read one of Hemingway's books. I won't spoil it for you. I'm really bad about spoiling things. I won't spoil this one for you. But I read the book. I got to the end. I got to the final page. And it all ended back. And I literally took the book. 
And I threw it out of the yard. I said, no, Hemingway, it will not end that way. Why do all, why do all of Hemingway's books end that way? Well, I, I don't know for sure. This is my guess. Hemingway suffered through World War I. He served in World War I. He didn't have faith. And that turned him pessimistic. It turned, it turned him into, honestly, an, uh, uh, an atheist romantic whose only hope in life was a noble death. And so all his books basically end tragically. Christians, we don't have to live that way. Because of the life death, and resurrection of Jesus, we know that there's a happy end of the story. We know that all the sin, all the suffering, all the sadness in this world, one day will be defeated, one day will be wiped away, and one day everything will be made right. We know that there's a happy ending. We look towards that happy ending, and we expect it. And that allows writers like C.S. Lewis to write books with happy endings. And one of my favorite ones is the book, uh, The Horse and His Boy. Anybody ever read that? It's a good one, yeah. Doesn't get as much run because they don't have a movie yet, although they should make a movie out of it. But it's my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia books. If you haven't read it, it tells the story of a horse named Bree and a boy named Shasta. Bree wants to get back to Narnia because there he can be a free horse. Shasta comes from an abusive home. And he wants to get away from his abusive father, but he always has this longing to go north. He always has this longing for a far-off country, but he doesn't quite know where it comes from. So Bree talks Shasta into to teaming up and riding north so they can both be free. And Shasta says, well, I'd love to go, but I don't know how to ride a horse. What if I fall off? And Bree says, well, if you fall off, I'll help you get back up. You get back on the saddle. I will ride again. And if you fall off, then you'll get back on again. And so they set off on their journey, and sure enough, Shasta falls off, and he gets back on the horse, and he falls off, and gets back on the horse. And eventually, I'll spare you all the details, but they defeat the bad guys, they escape the bad, from the bad guys with the help of Aslan, who's the lion figure in the story. They finally make it to this far-off country. They get to the end, and Shasta finds out that he is the son of a king who had been separated from his father at birth. And when he finally shows up at the castle, the father welcomes him, puts a robe on him, and puts a crown on his head. He's a, he's a son. He's a prince. That's the future that awaits us. But you've got to keep getting on the horse. Right? That, that act of getting on the horse is an act of faith. When you go through trials and you get backed up, you get bucked off the horse, you get back on. And you get bucked off again, you get back on. You get dumped, you get back on. You give into that sin that you never thought you'd, you'd give into again, and you get back on. You doubt whether or not God exists. But you pursue truth and you get back on that horse. You go to college, you begin to struggle with your faith, and you get back on that horse. And eventually, you get on that horse, and it, the Holy Spirit, carries you to the finish line where your Father awaits you with a crown. He says, welcome home. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You know what his joy was? The joy of seeing his heavenly Father smile on his face. 
for the joy set before us, we endure our cross. We pick it up every day in big ways and little ways. And what is the joy set before us? The smiling face of our Heavenly Father, ready to greet us. Let's pray that we'd expect it, that we believe it, and it would strengthen us. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this word that we can count our trials as joy because we know that you're going to use it to, to produce something in us, that you're going to strengthen us, that you're going to mold and shape our character to make us look more like Jesus. And that in the end, you, by your spirit, by, through the gospel, that you are going to bring us across that finish line and we're going to see your smiling face. And you're going to give us the crown of life, whatever that's going to look like. And we get to spend eternity with you, enjoying your blessings in a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, thank you, Father. I don't know what our students are going through. I don't know what their small struggles are or their big struggles are. But I know that you have a purpose in them. I know that you want to strengthen them and change them. And I know that you long to be with them face to face now. So I pray that you would strengthen them for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.